Jeremy. Thank you, and can I thank on behalf of the other speakers, Roger, for his hospitality here, and also for always, this is the most fascinating of occasions. It's certainly, for me, the high point of the intellectual year, and it's no, uh, I agree with Douglas, the intellectual year is not defined by the academic year. So, thank you very I'm much. sorry for you, Jeremy. Yeah, well, I feel sorry sometimes, <laughs> yes, as well. I'd like to start with a quotation. This is William Shakespeare referring to the May Day riot in London in 1517, and it's from a play which he if, certainly only probably wrote in parts, Sir Thomas More, but it's generally agreed that this is a passage he wrote. Other ruffians, as their fancies wrought, with self-same hand, self-reasons and self-right, would shark on you, and men like ravenous fishes would feed on one another. Very powerful image there. Um, Shakespeare had no doubt about the evils of what Elizabethans would have thought of, obviously, before the word, the word of populism. He depicted mobs in action in a number of plays, most memorably Julius Caesar and Coriolanus, an author also in his lengthy presentation of the 1450 Jack Cade Rebellion in Henry VI, Part Two. For those of you who are lawyers, you will remember that's the, where the memorable line is, let's start by killing all the lawyers, comes from. <laughs> Discussion of populism, indeed, is an aspect of long-standing debates, philosophical, political, and literary, about the values of democracy and democratization. This discussion goes back to the classical world, more particularly to the constitution and politics of Athens and Rome, and became newly urgent in the 19th century, with controversy focusing on the liberal agenda, I'm using liberal in the sense of liberal parties of the period, of an expansion in the franchise. The nature of both authority and power in this developing context became matters of concern to critics, worried that those without a due weight in the community would use the vote in order to redistribute wealth to their benefit and to the loss not only of the property owners, but also of the greater good and goods of society. At the same time, such populism appeared necessary to governments, particularly liberal governments, variously seeking to avoid a repetition of the radicalism associated with the French Revolution, or to incorporate subject peoples into imperial or quasi-imperial structures, to provide a return for the duty of military service, conscription, um, and as a corollary to the extension by states of universal education. A new social contract was offered, one in particular in which power and education were by these governments secularized and extended and therefore held as somehow likely to restrain the risks of popular radicalism. In turn, differing strategies of democratization were put forward in the 20th century. In part, there was the ideology designed to use the argument of the interests of the working class in order to advance extremely brutal views, which was, of course, in particular, the reality of communism. In part, there were arguments that social welfare was in some way the just desert of the working class. In part, there were determined attempts to win the working class from communism, attempts linked to Christian democracy in Europe, to the social welfareism variously of the Attlee government in Britain, to Catholic social policies, to post-1945 land reform in Japan, and to a degree to the passage of the so-called civil rights me measures in the United States. All these measures were populist in that their rationale rested on representations of popular, more specifically, so-called working class interests. 
They were not, of course, populist in that many popular views were in practice ignored, although generally implicitly rather than explicitly. This was particularly so of popular concern about immigration, social and cultural radicalism, and crime. Indeed, there was a strong anti-populist nature as a result to the development of 20th century democracy, and especially so in reaction to the political dangers believed to challenge liberal capitalist states. This anti-populist nature tended to be downplayed, but it was very much part of the practice of government and frequently of systems of checks and balances or what were presented as thus. The ambiguity, the resulting ambiguity in the relationship between democracy and populism is taken further at present because of the extent to which populism has become at once an analytical and a rhetorical term. And may I say, um, the new criterion and, and uh, social affairs standpoint are associated, as I hope we all are, with the use of words as, pre as precise tools. That is extraordinarily valuable and important, but it's also worth bearing in mind that most words are used by the public in highly imprecise fashions, and with, in fact, it often being very difficult to distinguish between analysis and rhetoric. Indeed, there is the danger that presentism will dominate the question and that it will become an aspect of America's culture wars, or whatever are called culture wars. Populism can become a code word for criticism of Trump or Brexit or much else in order both to justify hostility and to provide a supposed parallel between what are in practice and theory often very different movements, events and experiences. What indeed is a monolith to outsiders is far from it to those who live through experiences or those who are in the know. Moreover, this argument about and against populism becomes a form of criticism in terms of the standard left-wing notion of false consciousness, namely that people, especially the working class, allegedly do not or cannot understand their true interests because they are supposedly blinded by manipulation in the shape of being led to support foolish ideas. Populism can thus be treated with contempt as well as criticism. Indeed, there is a particularly strong linkage in the case of criticism of religious beliefs, notably as superstitious, an approach that linked some 18th century philosophes to later Marxists. And the use of language to make a political argument that suits the speaker is very much at issue here. Aside from this political and rhetorical convenience, there comes the glib tendency to lump together events and movements for reasons of convenience and in order to make an argument, something we're all guilty of. I'm as guilty of it as anybody else, but we need to observe what we're doing. Self-knowledge is crucial. Journalists and academics are particularly prone to this tendency. In addition to convenience, this tendency reflects often simplistic notions of history, time, and causation, notably stadial theories, the idea that history goes through stages, as well as explanation in terms of a supposed zeitgeist or spirit of the age, or conversely, with reference to apparently immutable socio-economic tendencies. These instrumentalists and reductionist accounts, you know, in other words, I have free will, you are explained by your socio-economic interests. It's hilarious how often that is. <laughs> division is these instrumentalists and reductionist accounts rob time of contingency and humans of thought intention evaluation and free action populism therefore is a term and a concept redolent of past and present thought and controversy about democratization and notably is contested in particular environments variously national political and chronological 
That, however, is not a conclusion. The fact that there is variety is not a conclusion that discusses, still less explains, change through time. Continuity in thought, rhetoric, and or action is not the same as similarity in causes, contexts, or consequences. So if we're looking at the world today in the 20-teens, free market capitalism is under assault, partly, as we've just heard brilliantly, through the, as it were, debauching of the future by uh, quantitative easing. I might add, uh, I also it strikes me that socialism and has become absolutely brilliant. A long time it consisted of bribing people with other people's money. Now it's moved on to bribing people with their own money. Anyway, uh, free market capitalism is under attack and to a degree not seen since the 1930s. The attacks come from our own governments in the shape of the cult of control, growing regulations and redistributive taxation, from within our own societies, no, notably with the censorship provided by political correctness and the politicization of higher education, from the replacement of the rule of law by the use of a readily constructed law in order to pursue political and governmental agendas, from the conviction that popular views, norms, and cultural preferences should somehow trump liberties and long-held values, and from the rise of autocratic practices and theories of government. Whether in China or Turkey, the last consciously reject the concepts, languages, and methods of liberalism, the, as well as the free market, obviously. These are each significant and require mention as part of an assault that is, once, that is at once general in its intent and consequences and specific in its manifestations. This indeed is a cultural clash, one that was predicted in the late 19th century in the face of mass urbanization and the development of populist parties. There is also another dimension which I don't have time to pursue but which I'd like to mention. This is the extent to which liberty in the present world is under attack in the shape of a threat to national societies from imperializing powers drawing on narratives seeking popular endorsement. China and Russia are the obvious examples here, um, but they do not exhaust the instance of pressure brought upon threatened peoples. So if you're looking at a debate over populism and you think about the contrast between what's going with Ukraine or Estonia on the one hand and the Russian presentation of some sort of uh, idealistic conception of the long-term rights of the Russian people, you're starting to see, again, that's an area that's worth thinking about. In contrast, the liberal tradition of national self-determination, one strongly pronounced from such 19th century causes as Greek independence and Italian unification to 20th century counterparts in the aftermath of the World Wars and the Cold War, is under assault, whether one looks at Estonia or Taiwan or a number of other states, under assault from outside. These are not separate issues, for the notion of subordination to a greater cause links illiberalism with would-be popularity and in the domestic as well as international spheres. An awareness of this cultural, intellectual and ideological challenge must, in my view, serve to encourage supporters of liberty and freedom to debate policy seriously and to look beyond the short-term politics of electoral cycles, important as these doubtless are. In looking at change and into the future, it's appropriate to note a range of possible factors from the technological to the political, the demographic to the cultural. And for me, the demographic is possibly the most appropriate when considering populism, because in my view, and I, we haven't heard it mentioned yet, the number of people inherently is and should be part of the debate. 
Alongside ideology, mass is part of the account. Indeed, I would put it that that is the principal issue with populism on the global scale and the principal, the reason why, it, in my view, it's a crisis. It's the number of people. All figures for global population are approximate, but the following may be given. Uh, 425 million in 1500, 1 billion in 1804, 1.6 billion in 1900, 2 billion in 1927, 3 billion in 1960, 6 billion in 1999, and 7.3 billion today. Uh, that will mean that for everybody here, including the very young uh, members there, um, the figures of the population is shooting up out of all recognition. And for most of us, the world's population has more than doubled in our lifetime. Okay? All trends are, of course, subject to discussion, but the present indications are for 8.75 billion by 2030, and on current trends, at least 11.4 billion by 2100. The kind of old-fashioned, naive view that as education spread to women, therefore population would become uh, self-regulating and it would cap out at 9.5 billion. Nobody who's a demographic futurist now believes. It's seen as sort of rather left-wing nonsense. Africa is the continent with the greatest likely percentage rise in population, with Nigeria the country due to be the most numerous. And this rise in population is certainly a motor of world change. Indeed, I would suggest the motor, although, of course, other narratives lend themselves to the, de to the debate. And, you know, if we were, after all, sitting here on long time spans, we'd be worried about geological change, but I think we can leave that to one side. Turning to population as the key element of populism, you can see it playing a role in both the political specifics of recent uh, years, for example, the Arab nightmare of instability in and since 2011, large numbers of young men, unprecedented numbers of young men with nothing much to do, uh, rioting and causing problems, and with reference more generally to the role of the young in revolutionary movements, whether it's the Russian revolutions, a lot of recent research showing that the vast number of active communists who went around killing people uh, during the revolution were actually surprisingly young. Now, the usual caveats that are applied to demographic catastrophism relate to the failure of Thomas Malthus. We've already heard him uh, to, uh, already about him to get it right, and more generally to the ability of technology to deliver a response. And the last, of course, was most brutally expressed by dictators proclaiming the triumph of humanity in the shape of their power and their remedies. Thus, in China, Mao Zedong rejected the traditional Chinese notion of harmony between the heavens and humankind, instead proclaiming, quote, man must conquer nature. Mao himself also declared, make the high mountain bow its head, make the river yield the way. And soon after, in a critique of an essay by Stalin, I wonder how many Russians would have written a critique in an essay by Stalin. Uh, Stalin, by the way, wrote a history of the Communist Party, which surprisingly enough got adopted by Soviet schools and universities. Anyway, in a, in a critique of an essay by Stalin saying that man could not affect natural processes such as geology, Mao claimed... This argument is incorrect. Man's ability to know and change nature is unlimited. No Malthus for him as a problem. This is dictatorial populism in its most extreme fashion, the belief that the human species uh, can achieve perfectibility in its most extreme fashion. The supposed good of the people, as interpreted by the rapacious party, is to control all, both human and natural. 
Indeed, the political attempt to drive environmental issues is far more extreme and dangerous to human society, certainly in the short term and possibly in all terms than the issues presented by climate change. For example, if you take Khrushchev, Khrushchev's attempt to dig up the steppes of Russia you know, in order to expand um, grain production in the late 50s and early 60s, was an environmental disaster in those areas, completely affected the hydrology, and of course, as you've probably seen, the RLC has largely shrunk out of existence, and also failed. They ended up being dependent on American grain imports. <coughs> the very bulk of a continually growing demos was not the major issue in classical discussion about the deficiencies of populism. In part, this was because there was no strong trend away from rhythmic patterns of population and economic change towards instead a continuous so far upwards trend in population numbers until the second half of the 18th century and even more the first half of the 19th century. As a consequence, intellectual, political and ethical thought about the issue was relatively slow to get going. Due to religious concerns and the understandable discrediting of eugenics, it, can, it cannot be said that this thought has moved forward other than in bland technocratic solutions linked to family planning. The latter, however, is a, frequently a classic instance of the moral and practical problems created by putting technical means foremost rather than in, implanting them in a, a discussion of what is socially going to work. There is clearly more space in the world for human settlement, and technological solutions may well be found to questions of food, water and fuel availability, waste disposal, mobility, housing and much else. That does not mean, however, that these solutions will satisfactorily address political, ethnic and other tensions linked to resource availability and distribution. That is a neutral phrase for what is very often a rhetoric, if not a politics, of redistribution through expropriation and other forms of seizure. Indeed, it was very interesting listening to Douglas's account of the expansion of debt to consider that in many sense, which is in a way a form of expropriating the future, uh, we don't see it like that, but that's in some ways what it is, to realise that there are even more brutal ideas of expropriation out there that are circulating quite widely in our society. You only need to switch on the internet to read some of them. Um, one way to look at politics across much of the world today is to see it as a response to the impact of population pressures on living hopes and standards. And these pressures can take the form of migration. Um, quite frankly, the fact that Africa's population is due to go from one to three billion by the end of the century is going to cause an enormous migration crisis for Europe. Uh, what's there at the moment is just tiddly with what's going to come. But trade competition is another form in that the low cost of labor, for example, in East Asia or South, Af South America, owes something to population growth there. International economic competition and integration, which are differing aspects of the same or similar processes, were aspects also of the capacity of uh, politics, international relations, to fire up populist or at least popular concerns. Again, this is a long and complex issue, and I think we need to be quite clear here. We need to put aside the current sort of and attack on Trump or the attack on um, Brexit and to realize that much that we tend to regard as a good thing in history, and one can use that term advisedly or at least can think about it, are, were indeed populist episodes. Uh, most recently, I suppose, one can think of the overthrow of communist rule in Eastern Europe, 
Um, obviously, uh, very un unsatisfactory elites being overthrown there. One could think of the attempt, unfortunately unsuccessful, in the so-called Green Revolution to see democracy come in in Iran. On the longer time scale, many of you here are Protestants, of course, the, or descendants of Protestants. The, uh, the Reformation can be presented, at least initially, as very much a populist attempt. And the Catholic uh, Counter-Reformation only worked to an extent when the authoritarianism of government was linked to a desperate attempt to make Catholicism actually popular. So, you know, one needs to be aware that although there is a presentist discourse, to use the horrible word, against populism, Populism, which is identified within some way, some sort of semi-fascistic right. The reality is it's much more common across history, and, it's and it is value-free in the sense that it includes uh, episodes and movements right the way across political spectrums, past and present, and right the way across religious and cultural spectrums. Some have been, however you wish to define them, pernicious, others meritorious. And the notion that policy should simply be left to the state and in addition preserved from accountability by secrecy has many weaknesses. If by populism you mean, for example, the idea that government should be accountable, then most of us surely argue that that's an essential, uh, essential construction of democratic government. It's not just that you vote for these buggers, it's just when they're in as when, have the chance to throw them out in four or five years. It's in the meantime that the actual practice of politics should be open to public scrutiny. That is what most of us understand uh, by, by democratic politics. Again, you have to be aware that this is not a practice that is necessarily in many states of long standing. In some states, it has no standing, of course, at the present moment. Um, the notion that, uh, sorry, so yet again, the placing and understanding of populism is unclear, both good and bad, helpful and unhelpful, and potentially equally so, whether form, means, or content. And populism can be form, means, or content. Technology, Eric very kindly uh, sort of said to me that quite rightly that I ought to say a reasonable amount about this. Technology is a different and difficult factor, but increases awareness about the world or at least distributes information. There is both a benign and a malign account, as also with populism as a whole. For example, the images of the West transmitted by television and indeed by other media, notably to East Germany, are generally credited as having in some respects sapped confidence in communism and have contributed to its fall. It is not surprising that Islamic fundamentalists sought to prevent or limit the spread of information about Western life or that the Western model was perceived as a threat to them. Television was banned by the Taliban regime in Afghanistan and the general practice of education for women uh, was something that remains, as we've seen unfortunately with our Muslim minority in Britain, something that they don't on the whole like. Moreover, the internet offered a range and capacity that were different from those of previous national, transnational, and in particular, global information and communication systems. To a degree, I mean, we all know about the faults of it, and there are faults and strengths. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not stupid, but what I just wanted to point out is the internet also permitted a more engaged and constant consumer response, with, as a result, consumers becoming users and users becoming producers as categories were transformed. Media content and software-based products provided platforms for user-driven social interactions and user-generated content, rather like the way in which American and British newspapers of the 18th century were heavily dependent on items sent in by readers. 
They had virtually no reporting staff. They were dependent upon people, what people sent them in. Um, to some, definitely, but not, but notably, but definitely not only in governments, this situation represented information as chaos and crisis. It's certain it's a repetition of anxieties held about the spread of printing and about the spread of education. It certainly provided a form and means for populism that was different to the rioting mob, but only by so much. Indeed, the application of the word crowd to the internet appears to me to be particularly appropriate. And alongside fears of an Orwellian government came those of a Hobbesian chaos. This counter two different forms of dystopia. This counterpointing reflected the catastrophism and paranoia that characterized much political debate and right across the political spectrum. But also, there are reasons for these anxieties. The fact that anxieties may be poorly phrased or that people may look down their noses at them does not mean, and that I think is something that almost all the speakers have been saying, does not mean that these are genuine forms of debate in a, um, in a sort of representative assembly, an assembly in which the society as a whole seeks to represent the views of the public and in which the publications also seek to provide them with voices. Possibly that is of a definition of populism, that of the rush to judgment. But on the other hand, human beings will necessarily respond to the environment in which they are in. Most of us don't have the opportunity of waiting 150 years to decide that it's how best to evaluate the Industrial Revolution or the First World War. If so, it is scarcely new or specific to particular values. On the, if the rush has been greatly speeded up by the interacting combination of greater literacy, new technology, and the ability and willingness of individuals to spend on the latter, it is not inherently necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I, you know, I think there are several conservative, I'm a conservative, there are several conservative responses that one can have to change. One obvious response is to try and see as little change as possible or to resist change. And that response, not necessarily a bad thing, just because people call it reactionary, it's not necessarily a bad thing. One saw that in the 19th century with a very well-informed fears. Uh, Andrew Roberts's brilliant biography of the Marquess of Salisbury makes it quite clear why this experienced parliamentarian was anxious about what would be the consequences of mass democracy. And in many respects, Salisbury was spot on. But there are other ways of looking at the problem, which is to say that we will try and identify what are conservative values and to try and push those forward in the debate about the process of change which is engulfing us all. The entire issue of information and liberalism is given fresh importance by the rate of social change, by the increase in population, which I've already referred to, and which means that you bring larger new generations to the fore, and in a sense means that steady state answers, whether those steady state answers are from the left, the right, or the centre, are inherently under challenge by the enormous increase in the number of the people, particularly young people, um, in societies. And by the way in which technology is opening up new possibilities for a typology of political space. Populism as means, rhetoric, and a term of denunciation both describes and comments on this situation. It's an important topic for conservative engagement, for conservatives now live in democratizing milieu that, while often highly uncomfortable, are unlikely to go away. 
how to use populist approaches in order to advance and support conservative arguments and interests therefore requires urgent attention. And I'm delighted that Roger decided to have this as his topic this year. To, to bewail populism is probably not, in my view, the best approach. I mean, we have in England, obviously, as you'll appreciate, populism is a challenge more from the left uh, not from the right, as that approach argument can readily be used by the left against popular conservative approaches. Indeed, condemnation of populism as an aspect of is, is an aspect of debates within conservatism, in part, and I'll repeat that one, to, for conservatives to condemn populism often serves the interests primarily of the left of non-conservatives or anti-conservatives. In, in a way, if we're going to spend all our time uh, rowing with each other, whether it's over definitions, whether it's over the problem, or whether it's over the solutions we would like to try and offer, then the end of the day, we're probably going to find we are pushed to one side. Um, there is, of course, the standard approach. What I stand for is reasonable, but your approach is crude and populist, uh, both employees as terms for extreme. This distinction, however, is not a precise one, and it's unclear why views that enjoy widespread support are automatically to be dismissed in this fashion. I, as a historian, am used to the notion that you deal with periods in which values are different to yours, but you still try and understand them. As somebody who lives in the present, I want to try and understand the values that are not mine, but nevertheless to ensure that those values that are mine are advanced in that context. I think that's the important aspect for us, and I am troubled in the extreme that some conservatives find populism unpleasant. It seems to me that that is the lag argument essentially of a left that is using notions of false consciousness in order to deny the limitations of their own policies. We should be very wary of borrowing that language and that approach from the left. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. I think Jeremy's sort of core, core points for discussion was that uh, Population growth is the, fuel for popular, is the fuel of populism, and that demographic change is the single greatest issue facing us today. Any thoughts? Uh, Christopher? Is populism much more than a word we use when we want to try and describe one of those intermittent moments when a majority of the public completely uncharacteristically become interested in politics? Well, that's one aspect of it, but it's all sorts of things. If you think, for example, about... Um, you can probably guess from our accents we're on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, but you see the same thing in America. If you think about popular culture, the people who... I try, cry, I try not to. Well, there you go. <laughs> There's the mistake, because you should, you're clearly not a politician. If you, you go canvassing, you will find on the doorstep the electors expect you to be able to discuss popular culture, whatever is whatever they've been showing last week. It, that popular culture, in some respects, is populism on a daily basis. It's what is being shown in the most popular soaps. It's the language the characters use. It's their, it's their relationships with each other. Often, I'm, I agree with you, I'm highly uncomfortable about it, but we need to not just treat it with contempt. Well, actually, let me come back, because I suppose I am a sort of politician. And the thing that, and Douglas, who's a very successful politician, may be able to confirm this better than I can, you say you must be in touch with what the public are thinking about. The public are not thinking about politics. 
No, I agree with you. Ninety times out of hundred. As I said, canvassing. I've done canvassing. I agree with you. They'll discuss what's on television. I had a conversation. I was telling somebody last night when I went canvassing for a friend of mine. Convers long conversation on how best to cultivate tulips. I had no idea. <laughs> and essentially, when I canvassed, I never said. I'm canvassing on behalf of the Conservative Party. I said I'm canvassing on behalf of my friend Oliver Colville. He's a really nice chap. And, you know, that's the kind of... Um, so, no, I agree with you entirely, but there is the, 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 there are populist notions out there that we need to engage with. They may not be political. In fact, the cultural ones are arguably more significant. I think we all want to know what the Conservative line on cultivating tulips is. I, well, I had to desperately think of something to say. The answer is always, can I just tell you, if you're canvassing, Douglas will bear, you out, bear me out on this. First of all, the flowers in their front garden are lovely, and you want to, uh, them to explain to you. But the other thing is to be very careful if you see anybody pushing a child don't say what a lovely boy or girl this is being, you know, because they're in pink or blue, because you're likely to get it wrong. You know, <laughs> you've got to be and besides, have the, have the, it's up to the child to decide. <laughs> Any thoughts? Daniel? Yeah. I want to take you up um, on, on uh, Jeremy, on the de demography thing. I mean, of course you're right that the world's population has doubled in our lifetimes. But during the same period, poverty has been hugely reduced as a proportion of the world's population. Yes. Now, if we're looking at the causes of political instability and uh, especially perhaps of, of the, the negative aspect of, of populism, as it were, mob rule, surely you need not just demographic growth but also poverty. I mean, if you look back, for example, at revolutionary situations in the past, the French Revolution, there were famines. Um, if you look at uh, the Russian Revolution, uh, as a result of the First World War, the economy was tanking. Um, if you look at the 1930s, okay, there wasn't uh, starvation in the United States or Western Europe, but there was considerable poverty. Um, what enabled uh, the New Deal to happen, which meant, of course, a huge expansion in the power of the state, uh, was real deprivation uh, in, in the dust bowls and, and, and large parts of America. As a, um, uh, what drove Hitler uh, to um, promise Lebensraum, you know, living space, was um, not just demographic pressure in Germany, a, a rapidly growing young population, but real poverty uh, as a result of the, of the Great Depression. Now, today, we do see these pressures in large parts of the world, notably the Muslim world. But in other parts of the world, we've practically abolished poverty. Certainly, poverty uh, of the kind that in the past drove political revolutions and, and instability. Can I just say on poverty? So, so, well, yeah. can I just finish, right, and then, right. then you can reply. Um, so it seems to me that, that if modern technology and, I'm sorry to say this, but democracy, I mean, a, a, a political system that is responsive and accountable uh, uh, can be spread around the world, then the mere fact that the population is growing um, isn't necessarily disastrous. You know, the, 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 the free market system, if it's allowed to function, um, if entrepreneurial... Uh, 
innovation and, and genius uh, is given its due uh, can solve these problems. Where, we have, where, where, where it doesn't work is where you have corrupt and dictatorial regimes, where you have uh, retrograde uh, ideologies such as socialism being, being imposed or reintroduced. Um, then, yes, indeed, um, you know, population pressures can, can lead to big trouble. Okay. But can, I'm can just saying that... You've, that, that you've made your point. Come what I would say is, is this. First of all, um, you're assuming that poverty is a fixed construction. As you know, in countries like the United States or Britain, the poverty line moves. What, uh, poverty is in part a matter of perception. Now, if you earn $20,000 in the United States per annum, you're in poverty. Most people in the world would think $20,000 is actually great riches. But people who see themselves as poor... Uh, you, earlier we had, for example, comments about how in Britain, I think it was Dun uh, Douglas was talking about, how people in Britain who weren't able to own their own house felt that they were poor or disadvantaged. Obviously, that's just a construction. For most of, most of British history, people haven't owned their own houses. But I just want to make a sort of separate point to that. Large numbers are difficult to control. You now have cities like Kinshasa, Lagos, Istanbul, Karachi, Sao Paulo, uh, which are all over, Mexico City, all over 20 million people. These cities are really only barely under the control of their government. And I'm not convinced that we should not regard that as something other than a matter of some concern. Roger. Well, on this demographic question, <clears throat> two, two things. One is, of course, in uh, most affluent countries, the demographic pressure is the opposite. We don't have enough people. You know, the old song, the, 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 uh, the rich get richer and the poor get children. Um, the, so places like the United States and certainly places like uh, Russia and most of Western Europe, the, the, you know, the population is negative. But uh, I, I, you know, I do have this sort of fear that that not very good novel by Jean Raspail, published in like, 1974, called in English "The Camp of the Saints," which uh, prophesizes a uh, catastrophic uh, uh, stampede of the um, dispossessed from in the, in the case of the novel, it's from India, but these days it looks like it might be from Africa, could swamp Western civilization and destroy it. Um, as I say, it's not a very good novel, but as a piece of uh, social prognostication, uh, I, I wonder. Those are very large numbers that you were... That yeah, they're were, extraordinarily large. Well, to just cheer you up, Edward Gibbon in The Declining Fall of the Roman Empire asks the question of whether those he called the barbarians can take over again. And he's a bit sort of, he doesn't think they will, but he thinks it's possible. And then he says, don't worry, civilization's already been reborn. He wasn't politically correct. Civilization's already been reborn on the other side of the Atlantic in the United States. Um, but his notion that, um, in a sense, Europe uh, was being, potentially, had been in the past, and potentially, again, would be challenged by large numbers of outsiders was a notion that I think is particularly strong in the cultures of places like Austria, um, Cyprus, places that have been on the religious front line, as, you, as it were, between Christendom and Islam. Um, and I do think that these are 
issues worth thinking about. I mean, I fully agree with your point that there are some countries, Japan is the obvious example, whose population is going down significantly. But the problem is the overall, you know, you and I can sit here and, you know, be, can be quite happy to discuss uh, international relations or domestic politics. And, you know, we're not really concerned tremendously ourselves about what's going on in places like the Central African Republic or Sudan. <laughs> South Sudan, but you go Congo, but you go country after country is politically unstable, and you know large numbers of people being killed and displaced for factors that are ones which almost make a mockery of sort of a Ponglossian confidence that somehow technology is going to solve all these problems. Because what, I mean, I'm a conservative. I think that there are long-term reasons why ethnic and religious groups and regional identities often lead people to oppose each other. We don't have to like those, um, but I think the idea that you can somehow, as it were, all remove them through some economic model, whether it's the neoliberalism of the right or whether it's the communism or socialism of the left, I don't think historical, you know, I, I can't see history demonstrating that. And for me, I've always thought that the, that the strength of Catholicism in Poland and Lithuania, despite the communist rule and the way in which that was demonstrated in 1989, 1990, was a real sign of the strength of historical factors over the idea of the theorists just remaking the world. That, that to me, anyway, is, is, is a factor. Can I just come Daniel, back yeah. briefly, since you used the word Panglossian, and I think maybe you had me in mind. I mean, Dr. Pangloss, uh, who's a sort of uh, joke version of, of Leibniz, um, was probably more right than wrong, wasn't he? I mean, the beginning of the 18th century, when, when uh, Candide is written, is actually the beginning of the modern era. It's the, it's the moment when the world through the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, the birth of the United States, really starts to sort of get its act together. Uh, so Dr. Pangloss isn't quite as silly as, as Voltaire made him out to be. Um, but I just wanted to point to, to one crucial point that you didn't talk about very much, though I know you, you have strong views about it, which is Islam. Um, all the rest of what you're talking about is manageable as long as somehow we can survive this huge wave of radicalism that is sweeping the Islamic world. I mean, the problems that we face in Ash Africa and Asia are almost exclusively to do with Islam. Um, it's not the Christian countries, it's not the Buddhist countries, it's not the Hindu countries. You know, they are not the main problem. It is coming from the Muslim world, which for reasons, internal reasons, of its own, nothing to do with the West or uh, oppression or exploitation, but to do with internal reasons which we don't really understand very well, you know, they are to some extent theological questions, um, is undergoing this vast upheaval. We may only be at the beginning of it. You know, this, this, we, this has not played itself out yet. The defeat of ISIS or the defeat of other radical movements doesn't begin uh, to put an end to this phenomenon. And it seems to me we... we for all sorts of reasons of politeness and, and political correctness, we, we prefer to skirt around this and talk as though it was only a fringe phenomenon. But it, it's, it's actually pretty fundamental to uh, the Muslim world. And uh, you talk about the demographic thing quite rightly, but it, it, it is particularly the young Muslims yes. who are attracted yes. to the jihadist ideology. 
Yeah. So this is a problem that isn't going to go away anytime soon. I think that's absolutely the case. To just explain the one on on the Pongloss, I'm not. Um, what troubles me, you may be well be right. You may well be right that technology will provide a uh, living standards which will enable this rapidly growing population to live in the the world, the spaces that do exist in the world. Um, and with most people being able to earn enough to feel comfortable in their self-esteem, and in particular for young men to be socialised. It's a real problem, the socialising of young men, as Charles Murray has brilliantly shown in his, in his works. Um, and, you know, and if you're right, I'd be delighted. I'd be absolutely... I love being proved wrong. I always, be, I always regularly seem to collect bottles of wine at general elections, particularly the last one, because I um, you know, usually bet against what I think is going to... What I want to happen, and it's a sort of... You know, but, the, um, but I'm just fearful that it isn't going to work out like that. And I'm very... I, I'm more prone to a dystopian views... And I think that's part of the psychology of being a conservative, maybe, that one's more prone to think of the, that actually there may well be trouble ahead. Just, just uh, on Dr. Pangloss, I, <clears throat> it would be interesting to hear from Cunegonde what she yes. thought about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Are there any questions from the floor? Okay, we'll then take a 20-minute break. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank and then we'll get on with Daniel Johnson's paper. Okay, okay thanks. thanks. Daniel Johnson, the editor of Standpoints. Copies here if anyone wants them afterwards. But anyway, Daniel and Daniel's paper is on Is it a free country? Transatlantic misunderstandings about populism. Daniel. Thank you. Can everyone hear? Um, so um, we've ranged in this discussion this afternoon uh, and this morning over the whole of world history, uh, political theory, uh, practical politics, the past, the present, and the future. So I felt we've been working quite hard and we deserve a little bit of light relief now. Uh, so this paper is a little more tongue-in-cheek than some of what you've heard. Um, but uh, I'm going to focus a little bit on the writings of uh, a man who was very famous in his day but now rather forgotten, A.P. Herbert, uh, who was both one of the funniest writers of the 19. 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, but also a remarkable politician. He was a backbencher. Anyway, uh, he, he sat as MP, by the way, for Oxford, for the university. In those days, we had a, the, the, the two ancient universities each had their own uh, seats in Parliament and uh, uh, elected by graduates of the university. And uh, Herbert held that seat until it was abolished in the 1950s. Anyway, um, populism is one of those words that means different things to different people on opposite sides of the Atlantic. Such differences may lead to transatlantic misunderstandings that may, as I hope to demonstrate, have calamitous consequences. Another such source of misunderstanding is the notion of freedom, as in, is it a free country? This was the title of one of the uncommon cases of A.P. Herbert, the distinguished writer and undistinguished barrister. He wrote more than 50 books, but never actually practiced law. His uncommon cases were imaginary cases uh, that uh, were later televised in the 1960s, and, um, uh, but, uh, but they all embodied a serious point. So his Lord Chief Justice, Lord Light, 
considers the appeal in Is It a Free Country of the veteran litigant Albert Haddock against his conviction for jumping off Hammersmith Bridge during a Thames regatta, for which he was fined two pounds. Quote, the appellant himself said that he did what he did, to use his own curious phrase, for fun, unquote. After considering in turn the six offences with which Haddock was charged and his answers to them, the Lord Chief Justice concludes his judgment as follows. But in addition to these particular answers, all of which in my judgment have substance, the appellant made the general answer that this was a free country and a man can do what he likes if he does nobody any harm. And with that observation, the appellant's case takes on at once an entirely new aspect. If I may use an expression which I have used many times before in this court, it is like the 13th stroke of a crazy clock, which not only is itself discredited, but casts a shade of doubt over all previous assertions. For it would be idle to deny that a man capable of that remark would be capable of the grossest forms of license and disorder. It cannot be too clearly understood that this is not a free country, and it will be an evil day for the legal profession when it is. The citizens of London must realize that there is almost nothing that they are allowed to do. Prima facie, all actions are illegal, if not by act of parliament, by order in council, and if not by order in council, by departmental or police regulations or bylaws. They may not eat where they like, drink where they like, walk where they like, drive where they like, sing where they like, or sleep where they like. And least of all, may they do unusual actions for fun. People must not do things for fun. We are not here for fun. There is no reference to fun in any act of parliament. If anything is said in this court to encourage a belief that Englishmen are entitled to jump off bridges for their own amusement, the next thing to go will be the Constitution. For these reasons, therefore, I have come to the conclusion that this appeal must fail. It is not for me to say what offence the appellant has committed, but I am satisfied that he has committed some offence for which he has been most properly punished. End of quote. Herbert parodied the style and substance of English legal arguments so well that according to the author, some of his cases, including this one, were taken to be genuine on the other side of the Atlantic and reported as such in American law reviews. What was intended by Herbert as an ironical assertion of the idea that England was a free country, for no such parody could have been published without the freedom of the press, was taken literally by some American lawyers. Some might put this down to a sense of humor failure. Now, as I am incompetent to analyze the transatlantic contrasts in humor that might explain such a misunderstanding, I want to take this opportunity to pay tribute to a man who certainly possessed such competence to a unique degree, the late Christie Davis, uh, to whom I see there is a very fine tribute in the current issue of, of uh, New Criterion. He attended many of these gatherings and entertained us eloquently on the sociology of jokes. But in this case, this case shows not only that Americans and Englishmen find different things funny, but that quite often we see only what we want to see on the other side of the pond. Without any evidence, I suspect that the Americans who lamented the fact that England was no longer a free country 
were genuinely concerned about the growth of what was later, in the 1960s, dubbed the nanny state by the then editor of The Spectator, Ian MacLeod. Indeed, what was intended as satire in the 1920s now feels too near the bone. Impatience at our lack of control over the creeping over-regulation by the unaccountable organs of the European Union, of which of what we British perversely persist in calling a free country, was one of the driving forces of Brexit. Yet that bid for freedom shocked and dismayed the American liberal establishment, represented by Barack Obama's finger-wagging and counterproductive warning that an independent UK seeking a trade deal with the US would go to the back of the queue. President Trump, by contrast with his predecessor, seems to have kept his eye on the ball when dealing with Europe. He predicted and welcomed Brexit as a blow for freedom and national sovereignty, but his view is, of course, influenced by the direction he wants America to take. It remains to be seen whether he will prevail over those who would like the United States to converge with European norms. During his election campaign, he criticized Angela Merkel, for opening Germany's borders to a million migrants in 2015. Quote, what she's done is insane, unquote, he said, warning of riots to come. A few months later, in 2016, he predicted a political backlash. Quote, the German people are going to end up overthrowing this woman, unquote. After the Trump victory, Chancellor Merkel was very quick to lecture the president-elect on the shared values to which she expected him to adhere. When the two leaders met last March, the atmosphere was frosty. After a working lunch that was evidently sticky, Mr. Trump made a conciliatory gesture by emphasizing that, quote, we share the same values, unquote. Mrs. Merkel pointedly did not reciprocate, but shot him a sideways glance of icy disdain. Last Sunday, the German electorate gave its verdict on Mrs. Merkel and her welcome culture, as she called it. She had her worst ever result, and for the first time since 1961, an openly nationalist party, the Alternative for Germany, stormed into the Bundestag. Their program, controlling the borders and halting the Islamization of Germany, was a direct response to Mrs. Merkel's cavalier disregard for the ordinary people who have paid the price for her open-door policy. Once again, misunderstandings abound. Many Americans will have swallowed the line of the German far left that the new party and its supporters are all Nazis who should be excluded from the democratic process. In reality, most of the six million who voted for the alternative for Germany are simply frustrated by the refusal of bigwigs in Berlin to listen to their concerns. After 12 years of a grand coalition of the two biggest parties, they felt they had no other way of protesting. By far the largest group of voters who swung to the right this year had abandoned Mrs. Merkel's own Christian Democrats, so centrist as to be hardly even a conservative party, let alone a Nazi one rather like the forgotten men and women who voted Trump last year, these Germans are demanding to be heard. No wonder President Trump proved to have a better understanding of German politics than Mrs. Merkel herself. 
She has learnt her lesson the hard way. If there is one thing worse than being a populist, it's being an unpopulist. <laughs> On both sides of the Atlantic, the populism debate has generated more heat than light. On the European side, in which for this purpose I include the British, there is virtually unanimous hostility to Donald Trump in any shape or form. No matter what he says or does, the media place the worst possible interpretation on his motives, which are invariably seen as populist. Thus, when he decided to remove the United States from the Paris climate change process, Mr. Trump was excoriated for his alleged ignorance of the scientific consensus and for his irresponsible abdication of global leadership. Footnote here, the scientists have suddenly admitted that maybe they did get it slightly wrong and maybe they did slightly exaggerate the global warming. But anyway, the reason the president actually gave for exiting from the Paris process that his predecessor had got a very bad deal, which was costing Americans trillions of dollars, was barely mentioned. When it was recently reported that the administration might be prepared to reconsider this decision if the financial terms were improved, this was presented in Europe as further evidence of the chaos in the White House theme that has been running consistently even since before Mr. Trump's inauguration. It is the same story on the Iran deal. His populism is blamed for his repeated threats to abrogate the deal, even though there is no evidence that the American public feels very strongly about it and every reason to suppose that Mr. Trump's main motive is genuine strategic concern about violations of the agreement by the Iranians and the threat posed by a nuclear Iran. In Europe, especially Germany, trade with Iran is big business and public opinion is mobilized in support of the deal by the governments that brokered it. Yet it is Mr. Trump who is accused of pandering to special interests. After his UN speech, the leading German conservative newspaper, the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, blamed the Jewish lobby in Washington. According to that paranoid perception, widely held in Europe, the populist in the White House has got together with his cronies in Wall Street to stop European firms supplying the Ayatollahs with nice, peaceful technology. Remarkably, it echoes the ideology of the Iranian government itself, as expressed by President Hassan Rouhani when Congress refused to ratify the Iran deal. Quote, the interests of one country, Israel, and one group, the Jews, have been imposed on the members of the US Congress. That's what Rouhani said. The same conspiracy theory now surfaces in Europe whenever Israel is mentioned. President Trump, leader of the mightiest nation on earth, is supposedly the willing puppet of Benjamin Netanyahu, leader of a tiny nation of seven million. In reality, the only specific promise that Mr. Trump made to Israel was to move the US Embassy to Jerusalem, which when I last looked, hadn't actually happened. Yet Europeans see no contradiction between their own anti-Semitic fantasies and the idea that this administration is soft on the far right, including anti-Semites. I encountered this attitude in a panel discussion earlier this year, held under the, under the auspices of Jewish Book Week, when several other speakers made dark insinuations, blaming Donald Trump for a spate of bomb threats 
on Jewish targets in America. The Trump victory had, they felt, given permission for anti-Semites to crawl out of the woodwork. Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, and others on the left have also given credence to this theory. But the only person who has pleaded guilty to many of these hoaxes was a far-left journalist, Juan Thompson, pursuing a private vendetta against his ex-girlfriend. The truth is that anti-Semitism takes many different forms across the political spectrum, but it is only in Europe, specifically in Germany, that it is officially defined as a, quote, right-wing extremist crime, unquote. Yet as a 2014 study of thousands of items of hate mail sent to the Israeli embassy in Berlin and the country's central Jewish organization found, only 3% came from far-right extremists. Over 60%, by contrast, were sent by academics, lawyers, and other educated Germans, many of them of, in their own eyes at least, impeccably liberal credentials. Yet Germany is a country where Angela Merkel's rival, Martin Schulz, has accused Mr. Trump of, quote, shameless and dangerous attacks on minorities and ruining America's reputation for freedom and tolerance. The warped logic goes like this. Populism in Europe is usually associated with anti-Semitism, which is always a right-wing phenomenon, so the same must be true in America. Trump is a populist of the right. Ergo, Trump must be anti-Semitic. The lack of a shred of evidence on which to base this silly syllogism doesn't trouble those who want to believe it. Enter the Anne Frank Center for Mutual Respect, whose director, Stephen Goldstein, responded to the president's insistence that I'm the least anti-Semitic person you've ever seen in your life by claiming that he quacks, walks, and talks like an anti-Semite. That makes him an anti-Semite. That's what Mr. Goldstein says. The fact that this grotesque smear comes from an American organization bearing the name of a Dutch Jewish girl murdered by the Nazis gives it credibility in Europe. And then there are the intellectuals. Take, for example, John le Carré. At a grand event held at the Royal Festival Hall in London this month, the octogenarian writer was fated before an audience of his literary peers to mark his latest George Smiley thriller, A Legacy of Spies. He took the opportunity to warn that Donald Trump is doing to the United States what Hitler did to Germany, quote, Something truly seriously bad is happening, Mr. Le Carre declared. These stages that Trump is going through in the United States and the stirring of racial hatred, a kind of burning of the books as he attacks, as he declares real news as fake news. The law becomes fake news. Everything becomes fake news, unquote. Well, I don't know about you, but... Have you seen pictures of Nazi book burning in Berlin? Does it seem in any way comparable to today's media obsession with fake news, which anyway wasn't invented by Trump? Do you think Mr. Le Carre knows what he is talking about? Here he is again, quote, I think of all things that were happening across Europe in the 1930s, in Spain, in Japan, obviously in Germany, to me, these are absolutely comparable signs of the rise of fascism, and it's contagious. It's infectious. Fascism is up and running in Poland and Hungary. There's an encouragement about. 
it's all Trump's fault. Actually, Poland and Hungary are democracies for the first time in history. They've never been democracies before. But how is the fact that fascist parties exist in Europe evidence of the rise of American fascism, let alone of a fascist or Nazi president? That really does sound to me like what in the 1930s people called propaganda, but now goes by the name of fake news. It is perhaps what one might expect from a former spy who now writes fiction with a left-wing slant. But the point is that it feeds into a narrative that is widely believed in Europe, that Mr. Trump's brand of populism is at best giving license to fascists and at worst is itself indistinguishable from fascism. To make this ludicrous argument, anything will do. If the president denounces sportsmen who refuse to stand for the US flag and national anthem, he is accused of stirring racial hatred, when in reality it is these highly paid and privileged players and playboys who are playing with fire by stoking violence across American cities. Mr. Le Carre's claim that Donald Trump's dislike of fake news is the modern equivalent of Nazi book burning brings me back to A.P. Herbert, who, unlike Mr. Le Carre, actually fought in the First World War and was a member of Parliament during the Second. His war service included writing light verse to keep up the spirits of his countrymen during the darkest days when Britain alone resisted German-occupied Europe. Much of his satire, collected in this slim volume, Siren Song, first published in October 1940, was, of course, directed at the Nazis, such as Von Ribbentrop, the Cosmic Flop, and Roaring Joe Goebbels, or at their allies, as in Veni, Vidi, Vichy. Uh, he had a dig at American isolationists, too, in a poem called Phony, written during the Battle of Britain, just after the phony war had come to an end, but still 18 months before Pearl Harbor. Dear Uncle Sam, do you still think, brother, one bit of Europe's as bad as another? Possibly, Sam, but forgive us, do, for now you're a corner of Europe too. Yet even at the height of wartime, Herbert Satter did not spare his own government and the encroachment of the state at the expense of liberty. When the Luftwaffe were blitzing London, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir Kingsley Wood, imposed heavy new taxes to limit civilian consumption. Wood included, almost as an afterthought, books, newspapers, and magazines, periodicals, along with household goods in the 12% sales tax schedule. This piqued A.P. Herbert. In Britain, Taxes on knowledge, as they're known, have been a taboo since the 18th century. Uh, I seem to remember the American founding fathers rather agreed with this line. When they were used as a substitute for censorship to limit the circulation of the press. So Herbert wrote this ode to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Sir Kingsley Wood, Sir Kingsley Wood, I don't believe you're any good. Sir Kingsley Wood, if you had said, I wish that fewer books were read for reading always was a bane, and it must not occur again. Why then, we should have understood just where we were, Sir Kingsley Wood, and nobody could well dispute you knew a book from, say, a boot. 
But now, from schedule number two, it's far from certain that if you do, all knowledge, I suppose, is doomed, for knowledge must not be consumed. But least of all, we need what's new. Last year's calendar must do. You're even putting 12% on the reports of Parliament, and we'll be paying through the nose for reading your delicious prose. In fact, as far as I can see, a betting book alone is free. Sir Kingsley, when your star is set, you will no doubt go higher yet, and England's men of letters there will greet you with a stony stare. But I should like to hear that day what Dr. Johnson has to say. Here is the best of British bloody-mindedness, which others may call populism if they wish. When Americans look up from the latest Twitter storm about the doings and attempted undoings of the president to throw a glance across the pond at the old country, I hope they will see a nation that has made up its mind to stand no more nonsense from the continent. If populism means seeing only the moat in others, uh, the other's eye, never the beam in one's own, then to hell with it. But if populism means seizing one's own governing class by the lapels and reminding them of the limits of good government, then I am all for it. We live in an age of officious officials, off whose overweening we urgently need to be weaned. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Daniel. Rogers had some thoughts. Oh, just um, I, some, some uh, meme going around the internet now is that uh, your, what you said about Le Carre reminded me of it, that fascism is, always seems to be descending on America, but somehow winds up landing in Europe. Exactly. Well, this is what I meant about transatlantic misunderstandings. You know, the Europeans really do have fascists. <laughs> and within living memory, you know, they were actually largely run by fascists. Uh, or even worse, uh, Nazis. Um, so when they look across the Atlantic, what they see is the mirror image of themselves. You know, they, they, they're looking for fascists and they find them. Uh, so a handful of idiots in Charlottesville are somehow magnified into a vast right-wing conspiracy, to right. coin a phrase. Right. Uh, and, um, and the president himself is supposedly behind it all, or... Maybe there are some other people behind him, um, but whatever. Um, how they reconcile this with what, uh, you know, I, I was being not flippant but totally serious about the anti-Semitic attitudes that you're now finding in the European mainstream. You know, the idea that Trump is somehow being controlled by Netanyahu, that sort of thing. You're finding this in, you know, mainstream newspapers like the Frankfurter Allgemeine. Not, not fringe I did notice uh, that Netanyahu was smiling during the UN speech. I think that confirms the... Well, clearly, in that case, he must have written it, um, <laughs> uh, rather than uh, uh, you know, the, the distinguished guest you had last night, who no doubt actually did contribute to it. But anyway, I mean, I'm just saying that the, the, the sort of um, the witch-hunting uh, tendency, uh, looking for fascists in America, um, is... Uh, is poisoning the public discourse in Europe about the transatlantic relationship. You know, we're in grave danger in Europe of talking ourselves out of the alliance, the Western alliance, the Atlantic alliance, that has kept Europe uh, safe and mostly at peace 
I mean, there are, have been a few exceptions, you know, in the Balkans and uh, recently in Ukraine, of course. But generally speaking, Europe has been peaceful uh, thanks to the American presence there. Uh, but if, you know, this anti-Americanism, uh, given a sort of new casus uh, belli, as it were, by, by the election of Donald Trump, uh, that, is, that has put wind in the sails of those who always did hate America. Uh, if that, that is allowed to become the sort of received wisdom across the continent, uh, which I very much fear that it is, then woe betide us, because there is nothing written in, 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 in history to say that Europe cannot return to its bad old ways. I mean, if there is one reason why Europe is not now run by fascists, or indeed by communists, uh, then it's the United States of America. And it's, uh, it's, it's when America stops caring about Europe, uh, you know, that is, that is, we should be very careful what we wish for. Yeah, Daniel's comments about a few, a few idiots in Charlottesville remind me there was a, in the 1950s, there was a great mail day, a headline from the British paper, the Daily Mail. There was something called the World Union of National Socialists at a meeting in the Cotswolds in England. And the headline was New World Leader Elected. By 51 idiots in the Cotswolds. <laughs> anyway, uh, David had a point. Yeah, I, I also find it amusing that America's oh, wow. leading anti-Semite has a Jewish son-in-law, a daughter who converted to Judaism, and two sons who married Jews. Exactly. Um, I, I don't know how it is in Europe, but I'm not sure that the term anti-Semitism correctly captures what is happening with the left. They hate Israel, not because it's Jewish, but because it's a, quote, white Western imperialist nation that is oppressing brown people. I suspect that at least for American intellectuals on the left, if the Israelis were Mormons or Episcopalians, the reaction would be no different. They view Israel, I think, through the lens of Fanon and uh, South Africa more than they do through anything having to do with traditional anti-Semitism. Maybe it's different in Israel, in, in uh, Europe, and I'm not saying this to absolve them. I'm saying this more to be able to properly diagnose what, what, we're, what we're up to, uh, we're, what we're up against, pardon me. Well, that is, of course, a vast separate subject, which perhaps we can't exhaust today, is you know, the nature of left-wing uh, hatred of Israel. Um, <clears throat> it's a complex matter. But in Europe, it does have this extra dimension that the Holocaust happened within living memory. And uh, I mean, I, I, in my talk yesterday at the, um, uh, sorry, the day before yesterday at, at, at the Manhattan Institute, um, I quoted the Israeli journalist uh, Tuvia Tenenbaum, who uh, went undercover in, around the German uh, refugee camps where all these Syrian refugees have been uh, kept, more or less living in limbo ever since they arrived, many of them two or three years ago. Uh, the Germans, you know, having salved their own consciences, you know, made themselves feel good about how liberal they were, they didn't know what to actually do with these people. Um, but what he did encounter among uh, these very sort of liberal Germans was a tremendous sense of superiority towards Israel, saying, no longer do we feel guilty. You know, we're better than them now. They're the racists now. We Germans are setting an example for the whole of humanity. Um, so we can stop apologizing. Now, that's a very unpleasant and dangerous line of argument. You can see where that is going. And uh, uh, when you put that together with the um, resentments that emerged in the election last Sunday, which have produced this, uh, this populist party, 
um, some of whose members, as I say, are probably you know, just angry, angry Germans, uh, but, but some of whom I'm afraid are real anti-Semites and, and you know, real sort of neo-Nazis. Um, it's, it's a rather worrying phenomenon. And uh, I think you know, Germany has gone from being, I've spent much of my life reporting from Germany, living in Germany, writing about Germany. Some of you may have seen my piece about Goethe in the current issue, uh, the September issue of, of the new criteria. Um, so I love this country, and I love its culture, and I love its people, and I, I feel very proud of having played a very small part in 1989 in, in opening up the Berlin Wall um, and reporting on it. But, you know, um, Germany, uh, Germany, the German demons need to be kept where they belong. Um, uh, we don't want any more Faustian pacts, actually. Um, and uh, now they've got six parties in their parliament, which is roughly the same number as they had at the end of the Weimar Republic. And Germany's gone from being the stablest country in Europe, which it more or less has been since 1949, when the Federal Republic was founded, to being one of the more unstable ones. And that doesn't bode well for the future. Uh, so um, I just wanted to say that, you know, it was the, the supposedly uh, wicked populist, Donald Trump, who correctly warned Mrs. Merkel that she was making a catastrophic mistake. And it was the um, supposedly uh, liberal elite politician Merkel who got it badly wrong. Um, so perhaps we, you know, we need, uh, we need a, a slightly more, maybe not populist politics, but an understanding of how popular uh, movements and, and the, 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 uh, the politics of the people uh, actually works. You know, how people, ordinary people, feel about dealing with the consequences of policies like the open door policy. You know, it wasn't the, the elite in Berlin who had to live with the, the, the refugees next door. It's ordinary, much poorer Germans who had no choice in the matter. They weren't consulted. Um, and, uh, and by the way, Mrs. Merkel also imposed this policy on the rest of Europe. I mean, it wasn't just the Germans, you know, th these refugees are still coming to this day, and nobody in Europe really knows what to do with them. Jeremy. Um, can I agree with uh, Daniel's comments on Germany? I think they're very prescient. Um, can I also try and bring out a sort of more general point? I notice visiting the United States that there is sort of a frequent comment about among Americans um, about the alleged ungovernability of the United States, et cetera, et cetera, despair with the political system. And one sees that quite strongly represented, often linked with criticisms of the present president. Um, can I just make a general point? If you look around the world at the present day, you would be hard-pressed to see many political or governmental systems that do particularly well, whether you're looking at democratic ones, authoritarian ones, whether you're looking whichever continent you're on. And what that does, to my mind, underline is that the greatest benefit is for those societies that have relatively weak governments because since the actual process of government and the actual process of creating and 
government policy is so vexed, so difficult, and so prone to have all sorts of political and other institutional problems. We are better off going back to the conservative wisdoms that we associate with Hayek and others and noting that a smaller governmental structure is actually better for society as a whole. Thank you, Jeremy. Can I make one little comment on that? Um, we talked a little bit earlier about liberty under the law and how important it is that liberty should not be completely unlimited, that it, it does need, it needs a, uh, the rule of law uh, to give it reality and force. Um, now, Friedrich Hayek, um, uh, a very great man, uh, who I met once at the very end of his life, um, came very strongly to this view uh, in, the, in the later part of his life. Um, you know, having written uh, his great uh, texts, like The Constitution of Liberty and The Road to Serfdom, which were all about reasserting liberty, he then devoted himself almost exclusively in later years to analyzing law and what could go wrong with law, how law could get out of control and uh, metastasize and, and become uh, an oppressive uh, means, uh, particularly when combined with a certain perversion of democracy, uh, as opposed to the common law, which was not imposed from above, but which arose to some extent from below, you know, through case law. And uh, this brings me back a little bit to Herbert, because uh, Herbert, being a man of the law and a, a satirist of the law, nonetheless loved the law. You know, he loved the common law and the, the whole uh, way in which uh, judges and, and barristers and so on uh, uh, attempt to achieve some kind of recognition of, of, of truth and justice through a sort of process of trial and error and um, uh, uh, adversarial um, conflict in the courts. And it's this, this understanding of law uh, the Anglo-Saxon law, it, it's, it's unique, of course, to the English-speaking nations, this, this idea of law, not the sort of Roman administrative law, uh, that it seems to me is as important as uh, perhaps the key to preserving our liberties. And it, it gives me great encouragement that, that Trump, for all his other faults and occasional um, vulgarities, uh, he does seem to get that. He does seem to have a real understanding that uh, the key to um, uh, bringing America back to its true uh, um, vocation as, as, as the world's um, source of inspiration for liberty um, uh, is, is to go back to the Constitution, to the Founding Fathers, and uh, to the rule of law. Uh, so as long as he can stick with that basic insight, I don't think he will go too far wrong. George. I have a comment, and I invite your, your own response to it, about the Alliance for Germany, and it leads to a, a question about how Americans can better understand what is happening in Europe since we are being getting information that's filtered through sources that are not necessarily to be relied upon. My impression of the Alliance for Germany uh, result is that this is, it exemplifies a problem that populist movements have again and again, and that is there are legitimate grievances at the grassroots, people in desperation turning to a party that in this case had some tawdry elements evidently, and also generally a, 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 an aura of great instability in leadership. Uh, as I, I gathered from, what's her name, from the... Frau Yeah, she walked out and so forth. Exactly. So that yeah. they're having a leadership crisis already. Yes. It doesn't give one confidence that that is going to be a vehicle other than a kind of great 
reminder of the of the of the uh, ferment that is going on in the in the German population, but that that's one point. But it leads to the uh, the other question that I really had, which is that where do Americans turn to get relatively dispassionate information? If 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 the Frankfurt newspaper of great fame is as biased as you indicated, and other sources, and you've indicated that there's over or someone did maybe as Professor Black overwhelming uh, British antipathy to Trump and Trumpism and so forth. So where do we over here look? And I know your own magazine, because as we discussed last night, is is a charity and does not take part in politics. Where do we go to find a, a, a more accurate perception of what is happening in a place like Germany? Stan uh, can still report on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. we okay. certainly oh, can. Yes. No, we, yeah. We, yeah. We, uh, the fact that we're a charity uh, simply makes it easier for generous people, such as perhaps some of those present, uh, to, to, to help us and support us. It doesn't, it, it, the only restriction is that we can't tell people how to vote in elections. Uh, we aren't allowed to do that, and, and that also applies to referendums such as the, the Brexit one. Um, but um, where do you get good information? Well, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'd be, you know, I'm a journalist by profession, so I'm not going to uh, write off the free press completely. I mean, you know, newspapers and magazines all, all get things wrong from time to time, with the, of course, exception of the new criterion which uh, has never been known to do that. But, uh, but, I, but I, I, I mean, the, the, the press um, is still our best uh, source of information because at least there the information has been filtered to some extent by editors. Uh, I think, you know, if you just take the social media, uh, you are going to get all kinds of outrageous conspiracy theories and, uh, and incorrect facts. Um, but, I mean, I don't think there's any simple answer to, to, to this. Uh, Europe is uh, not always well reported here in America. I mean, I, I, I read the Wall Street Journal. Um, I think that's pretty reliable. Uh, but it's very focused, of course, on economic news. Um, uh, but, I mean, one, one, one point I would, would pick up on, on the, the, the populist uh, party in Germany. You're right that it's not going to uh, probably become a dominant party itself, but it is going to have a knock-on effect on the main parties, particularly the Christian Democrats, just as Douglas's uh, old party, UKIP, had a dramatic effect on the Conservative Party in Britain and persuaded them to finally give people a say on membership of the European Union. And I have little doubt that the shock election result in Germany will cause the Christian Democrats to have a bit of a rethink about uh, which direction they want to go. They had drifted so far to the center or even to the left that a course correction was overdue, and I suspect there will be a new leader. Uh, Mrs. Merkel, her days are now severely numbered, I suspect. Um, you know, that, that this, this, this result was so bad uh, that it's made it almost impossible for her to form a a stable coalition now, so that will probably have to be someone else's job. Thanks. Are there questions from the floor? Yeah. Uh, sorry, I see. Uh, over here. This gentleman here yeah. and, and this gentleman, yeah. Uh, 
this has been a, a fascinating day with all of your presentations, which have been excellent. But I, I'm, I'm left still <clears throat> somewhat puzzling about the proper definition of uh, a populist. And <clears throat> he's been referred to a couple times during the day. Let's take the case of um, uh, Erdogan, is it the premier of, um, or the president now, of Turkey. Uh, do you consider him a populist? And if so, why? And if you do not consider him a populist, why? Who's that to? Yeah, I think probably anybody. He created a political party which he directed in terms of the overthrow of the existing structures of the Ataturk Kemalist state and has been reasonably successful in that. Um, obviously, it's something that's emerged through the democratic process in the sense that he's won elections. Um, but the way in which he conducts politics is, shall we say, what in many other countries would be regarded as rabble-rousing his... Demagoguery. Yeah, demagoguery. So I think, yes, I think it would be reasonable to describe him as a populist, whether you like or dislike his policies. I so happen to dislike his policies. Uh, so in other words, I'm not... I'm concerned about the form, not the content. Some people, when they refer to populism, and sometimes myself, are referring to the content, and this is the problem with the word. It can be used, as I think I mentioned in my piece, to mean in different categories. But in his case, it is the form of his politics, but also, and Daniel's been very eloquent, an excellent speech, but also in standpoint drawing attention to the problems of a inherently politicized Islam. Erdogan has put that in overdrive in the case of Turkey. Would you agree with that, Daniel? Yes, I, I do. I, I, I met Mr. Erdogan uh, once, um, uh, quite a long time ago now, about 10, 10 15 years ago when he was only fairly recently had become Prime Minister of Turkey and nobody in the West quite knew what to make of him and we were all disposed to sort of give him the benefit of the doubt and he was generally then described as a, a moderate Islamist. And it turns out he, 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 he was accurate. <laughs> <laughs> well, he came to, uh, to Oxford to give a speech and um, afterwards we were allowed to ask questions. He does actually speak English, but of course he insisted only in speaking Turkish because the Turkish TV cameras were there. And uh, I said to him, uh, uh, President, Mr. President, um, you, uh, uh, you are often described as a moderate Islamist. To me, that is an oxymoron. Um, so what does it actually mean? You know, what, what, how can you be both an Islamist, a political, uh, believe in political Islam, and be moderate? And he looked daggers at me, and the answer came back, this is just the way you talk in the West. It, it's not the way we Muslims think. For us, there is only one Islam. There is no moderate or extreme. This is just your way of thinking. And it, a, a silence descended on the room. It was actually quite spine-chilling because we suddenly realized what we were up against here. This is long before, that I, may I say, he had started throwing the entire press in prison or um, mass executions and all, all the horrors that we've seen, particularly since the coup d'etat, the failed coup d'etat, which we still don't know whether it was a real coup d'etat or a sort of staged 
kind of Reichstag fire type operation. But whatever it was, um, we now see him in his true colors. And we also see that this whole experiment that you could have a sort of Western democracy but a moderate Islamist party taking power, uh, well, I think it's been tested to destruction. You know, if, if, if that is what it means, uh, then if ever in the future we have an Islamist party taking power in Europe, uh, woe betide us. I mean, that is not, in, that is not impossible. You know, in, in France, I think it might even happen sometime in the next uh, 10 or 20 years, um, given the demographics. Uh, but uh, it's pretty clear that Mr. Erdogan will never again renounce power peacefully. You know, he will never be defeated in a free and fair election. Yeah. Uh, so uh, whether he's a populist depends on what you mean by that. I mean, if, if, if he's a populist, then I don't think you can call Donald Trump a populist. They're completely chalk and cheese. I mean, Donald Trump accepts the rules of the game. He plays by the rules. He, he respects the rule of law. You know, he may say extravagant things in the heat of a campaign, but he's a proper democratic politician. I don't think Mr. Erdogan is that at all. And uh, therefore, one shouldn't use the same term to describe them both. And the problem with Erdogan is not that he's a populist, but that he's an Islamist. I mean, he yes. once said that dem democracy is just an express stop on the train that, that we're on, when, and when you get to your <coughs> destiny, you, you get off. So it was, a, it was a means to an end. One man, one vote, once. Any more questions? Yeah, over there and over there. Question for Mr. Johnson. It seems to me one of the things that has wonderfully come out today is the way in which populism is, being, is a word being used uh, in a derogatory way to uh, cast dispersions upon what are actually fairly natural democratic processes, as you made the point earlier in the day, used by a kind of elite that is masquerading as a paragon of rationality and objectivity that is looking at these demagogic, you know, dem demagogic sort of irrational forces. Uh, your talk just now brings out, I thought, wonderfully how in a way, the demagoguery and irrationality is precisely in that masquerade, insofar as we see this rise of a kind of anti the accusations of anti-Semitism, the accusations of Nazism, are coming from precisely the corners that claim to be objective and rational, and yet they're, they're fetid swamps of, of, of a kind of fantastical irrationality which, of course, doesn't bode well at all for our political structures. But I just wonder if you could comment on that irony and on the, the blatant renunciation of any kind of objective rational analysis in those supposedly rational circles. Well, I, I, I think the decline of, of reason um, is one of the deeper currents uh, of our culture at the moment, which... Um, decline of respect for, for rationality and uh, for rational thought processes. And it goes hand in hand with relativism, uh, the various kinds of relativism, um, uh, moral relativism being perhaps the most obvious one, but cultural relativism too, the idea that you know, what to us may seem rational or reasonable uh, is, is merely a sort of epiphenomenon of, of, of uh, of the West and of capitalism. Um, I don't know what the answer to that, all that is. And it clearly 
goes much deeper than the question of who is or isn't in the White House or Downing Street and these purely political questions. Um, we do need to do something about our universities. And yes. I can't think of any journal that has done more to expose the irrationalities of our campuses than the new criterion. Um, I mean, uh, under, under Roger, he's made that his mission to, uh, to really uh, tell it as it is. And um, uh, I think uh, for those of us in Britain who, who, who've been watching, uh, the great American universities, which, by the way, still are great universities. I mean, you know, apart from Oxford and Cambridge, all the top universities in the world are in this country. And uh, it still is the dream of every British academic to be offered a chair uh, in a great American institution. But there is something rotten uh, in, in, in the state of Denmark, uh, in, the, in, in, the, in, in the state of dare I say, uh, even, you know, the great university after whom this, this club is named and yes. other great, yes. great universities. And uh, uh, rather than, I think, uh, obsessing ourselves with the threat of populism, I think we should be looking to uh, the deeper problem uh, of uh, the decline of, um, what can I say? Well, let's call it the decline of Western civilization in the very places where it should be celebrated and best exemplified. You know, in fact, if, if Western civilization is ever to go the way of the Roman Empire, uh, then it will be, the rot will have begun in our universities. <coughs> ben, that'll be the last question. Um, I wonder if our friends from, uh, who are over from London could <coughs> comment on how much they think the reflexive anti-Americanism, um, anti-Trump sentiment in the UK is merely aesthetic. Um, that was the sense when I was living in London that I got. You'd try to engage someone on the topic of Trump and they'd say, oh, you know, he's, he's just a buffoon and he wears his tie too long and, you know, he puts ketchup on his steak. And, you know, they, they, they wouldn't bring up any substantive comments and you'd say, oh, can we engage on the issues? And they'd say, no, he's just beyond the pale. And, that's the sense I get. That, that was the sense I had in London. It's the sense I have in America, too, is that that's, that's, it's the same sort of objection, and nobody wants to actually talk about what's he doing, what will he do. So I, I want to know, do you see that in the UK? Can I, can I have Jeremy. a shot at answering that, and then uh, I'm every, sure the Everyone others. from the UK yeah. can comment. Um, first of all, I think that there is um, a degree of criticism that is greater than that um, in Britain, particularly on the left. Um, I don't think, though, that in Britain there is the same degree of criticism of President Trump or the United States that you get in many parts of continental Europe. Um, I spent uh, a week in Germany this, uh, this autumn. I was in Konstanz, and I was reading the Süddeutsche Zeitung, which is, you know, a properly, I hope Daniel will agree, a respectable, respectable. respectable newspaper. And I was very struck that the portrayal of the Korean dispute was of two infants fighting each other. Now, that is not a description of what is going on at all. You know, there is, on the one hand, a revisionist power which is completely and dangerously threatening the world order, and on the other hand, the United States is trying to maintain the world order. But there is a tendency, I fear, which has been encouraged by the way in which it's easy for people 
often in a very ignorant fashion, to focus on this president as if he exemplifies the entire nature of the United States. I personally am not troubled by President Trump. I have, you know, my view is America is our great patron power. It is our ally. There will always be, and you would expect there to be differences of opinion. And, you know, they, at the present moment, we're in no way having as bad relations with America that we had during the 60s when Johnson was furious with us for not coming into the Vietnam War, or during the 70s when Heath and uh, Nixon didn't get on. Our relations are actually quite good. And I think there isn't a degree of animosity to the United States akin to the extent that there was one, particularly among young people during the Vietnam War. But I would um, say that it is less happy, uh, and there's a lot of anti-Americanism in Germany, in Italy, in Spain, less so in France. France, I would say there's much less. France is more similar to Britain on that, on that matter. Uh, a last point, can I just say, since I think I'm one of the very few academics here, I agree entirely with what Daniel has said. I think that the uh, and what Roger, uh, Roger knows, I thoroughly concur with his comments in the new criterion. I think that there is something particularly important about the failure in higher education. Now, far more people go through university as students and, uh, than ever before, far higher percentage. And fortunately, many of them ignore their academics. That's really to the good, and they spend their time on doing other things. So that's absolutely excellent. But alas, a large number are affected by the climate of opinion which you get from the institutions, the academics, and fellow students. And what Daniel tells you is all too correct. It is a major cultural challenge rather than just a curiosity of idiotic uh, eccentrics. The i move on to that. I'd say what the Trump phenomenon has done in Britain is it's broadened the spectrum of anti-Americanism. I mean, for the real left, I don't think it's made any difference at all because, I mean, I don't think Americans realise this enough, but someone like Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, for, for the British far left, Obama wasn't a hero. For people like Jeremy Corbyn, Obama, I mean this literally, not an over-the-top comment, Obama is a war criminal who should be put on trial but it's broadened the acceptability of anti-Americanism and it's reached a sort of wider popular audience, I'd say. I, I'm struck about how much coverage there is of Donald Trump, but how rarely you ever get to hear in the BBC or, or Sky coverage of Donald Trump in his own words. So much of the coverage is yeah. members of the commentariat class talking about what he said in the context of their own preconceptions and their own worldviews. And actually, quite often, I find myself just, just not trusting what I'm being told. And I, I think that's probably quite a widespread phenomenon. Um, I, I think that um, it's a problem that many so-called populists and insurgents face. When I was myself a member of an insurgent party, it was just quite extraordinary how much of the coverage about what UKIP was doing was all based on a, a fantasy narrative. I mean, the media even talks about a narrative. They, they should actually call it the fiction because they then shop around for facts to, to, to justify the story. And so often on, on BBC Radio 4 or, 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 or the main evening news, if Trump is being reported, the journalist and the editor of that programme are basically using it to send disapproval of things that they regard as, as bad. Um, and I think it links into the point about the state of universities and academia. I just, um, so many times today, I've thought about a book I read 20-something years ago, Alan Bloom, Closing the American Mind. And um, oh, yeah. tragically, it, it, it 
has turned out to be frighteningly prophetic. Daniel. Well, uh, I don't have too much to add to what uh, my colleagues have just said. I mean, I think, I think they're all absolutely right. But um, I just wanted to sort of close on a, on a, on a, a lighter note again. Um, we've been here before, you know. Um, there's nothing new under the sun. And the kind of thoughtless uh, and often hypocritical uh, leftish uh, attitudes that are now re-emerging uh, under the guise of, of Corbyn's Labour Party and other similar movements uh, in Europe. Um, back in the 1930s, um, A.P. Herbert uh, wrote, uh, one, one, well, this is November 1939, so just a month or two after Britain had, um, had entered the war, uh, you know, declared war on, on Hitler after his invasion of Poland. Uh, so this is, this is the moment when people were sort of looking back over what had happened and wondering who was right and who was wrong and so on. And, and suddenly, the people who'd been most aggressive uh, were nowhere to be seen. And so he wrote this poem, Where is young Lance? Where is young Lance the leftist who shouted arms for Spain, who doubted so the fortitude of Mr. Chamberlain? And if such arms had been dispatched and would soon have spent his breath on hissing that his countrymen were profiteers in death, where are Isolt and Steve who, hanging posters from their necks, marched fearlessly to Downing Street and cackled, save the checks, who cursed because we did not save the Abyssinian souls, but thought it very rash indeed to guarantee the Poles? Oh, where is battling Barbara, who thought it would be good to stand against aggression till we actually stood? And where is Spitfire Florence, who confidently swore that if we threatened war enough, there would not be a war? Where is young Noel Nestor, so mystically sure that anything that Russia did was peaceable and pure? And while, of course, our empire caused her honest blood to boil, explained that righteous Russia would not pinch an inch of soil, where to is Percy Pink, who backs a loser every race, but like the happy tipster, loses neither funds nor face? And where is modern Mervyn, who was bubbling fire and sparks, but cannot aid the war because it's not in aid of Marx? And what of comrade Chris, who thinks democracy such fun, always accepting anything our parliament has done? And Ermintrude, who wants free speech and voting everywhere, although, of course, in England, an election's never fair. And where are, where are the youthful genii who know exactly how the cosmos should be managed for their chances surely now? Where are the new school knickers who despise the old school ties? What do they do to show themselves more good and brave and wise? Their sisters are in hospitals, their brothers won't be long, but they are still explaining where the government was wrong. Or in the bilious weekly, very lengthily expound the reasons why they think their ideology is sound while Reginald, who actively cannot assist the war, proclaims the right to know at once what he is fighting for. Where Mervyn is or Barbara, we simply do not know. But Lance, I hear, is lecturing in Prudence, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, I, well, that, we, yeah. thank you, everybody. Thanks.